Welcome to MMO, the Mike Mike and Oscar show. They cover films then, win the gold, but now we're talking Pixar films for all of these shows. From Toy Story 1 up through Toy Story 4, this is the MMO, the Pixar Rewatch Show. And we're back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar rolling right along into this week, our eighth entry into our Pixar Rewatch series coming up right now today as myself, Mike One, and co-host also Mike are going to cover one of the uh, saddest films. Beloved. Of, like, great, I, there were grown men yeah. that broke down over this. I remember the first time in theaters when they saw it, covering the movie Up. Me too, me again. <laughs> Which is a true statement. This is this is a great film. Uh, I love balloons. I love old people. I love, I love Cub Scouts. I love animals. So, yeah. And I love uh, Venezuela and their... Uh, they're wonderful, wonderful tapuis. So does Pete Doctor. Yeah. And we're going to get into that and all that it pertains. If you've not joined us before for an entry into our Pixar rewatch series, what this is, is we are reviewing the entirety of the Pixar filmography in the lead up to Toy Story 4 coming out this summer, of course, on June 24th. Uh, in the interim, we are going not necessarily picture by picture... Pixar picture, not necessarily picture by picture in the Pixar rewatch series. We're covering franchises at a time, but there are these outliers, these one-offs, these originators, sure. like Up, for example, where they will be having house within their own episode. Every episode of the Pixar rewatch series is basically like an Oscar Sprint profile that we do. There's two parts. There's a non-spoiler section, which will be the first half. We focus on the performances, the box office, the specs, all that happy stuff. Then there's a spoiler warning, and all the spoilers are in the second half of every episode. Now, what we also do to differentiate these episodes a little bit in the first half in the non-spoiler section we are focusing on the pixar company what kind of brought them to where they are with every one of these releases where the company stands as far as the place and time when these movies came out and in the spoiler section we are focusing on the 22 rules of screenwriting success that have permeated throughout screenwriting classes across the country that pixar famously released some years ago Sorry. that's a mouthful that's pretty much what these episodes are and i'm going to hand the reins over now to michael because i'm tired of talking and we're going to start the these episodes like we do again non-spoiler section for the first half each one of these episodes starts by mike giving us the cast and crew for up yes the old man protagonist carl Fredrickson, is voiced by ed asner uh he's known from the mary tyler moore show he's santa and elf with will ferrell and his voice sounds familiar to our audience because mike he was a voice actor on pretty much all our childhood cartoons or whatever. It was like a 15-year stint where he was just doing everything. He was in Gargoyles, Spider-Man, Superman, Batman, all wow. those animated series. And then from Freakazoid to Captain Planet, all the way through more modern times like The Cleveland Show and The Boondocks, Ed Asner is in that voice talent pool. He was not, he couldn't have been a regular character in Captain Planet. He had to be like a one-off. It was like 30-something episodes For real? where he was in it. Holy yeah. shit, all right. Unbelievable, right? <laughs> I'm going to let you do the filmmaker stuff this time, so this is really just a cast explanation. Uh, for Russell, they just went and got a regular kid. 
And I thought Imagine that was that. brilliant. I'm going to talk more about it later. Uh, this is a non-actor. This is a character played by Jordan Nagai. Yeah. And other than one episode of The Simpsons in 2009, he hasn't acted since. So this is just a regular kid. This is nine or ten years later, maybe maybe 11 if you count the production time. So he's probably 20 years old now. He's in college or just graduating, and that's where Jordan Nagai is right now. I wonder if that Simpsons episode was a take on the character he did in Up. I don't know. I have to watch it. Uh, Doug the Dog is voiced by one of the main animators, one of the co-writers, Bob Peterson. Squirrel! A quote that he said, as an actor, I just channeled my own dogs. (laughs) And it ended up working, and we just decided to keep it, unquote. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, who among us, what dog people don't have that voice that they know that they attach to their dog as if their dog could speak? I know I do. I also do. <laughs> Christopher Plummer from All the Money in the World, Beginners, Oscar nominated many times, is Charles Muntz. I was surprised to learn that this was him. It didn't sound like yeah, it. Yeah, the great explorer there. Yeah. What a rich voice he has. Yeah. Delroy Lindo. This is a face you will know from everything 80s and 90s. Uh, he was from Get Shorty, a bunch of Spike Lee movies. He plays the voice of Beta. And, of course, we have John Ratzenberger, that mustache from Cheers, playing a construction Keep getting those checks, Johnny boy. Mike, you got the history of the Pixar company. All right. So, Mike, this is our eighth entry into the Pixar rewatch series we're doing. I think it's fair for me to say at this point that I'm officially worried about the day-to-day mindsets of those at the top of the Pixar food chain. Because (laughs) we talked in our Finding Nemo, Finding Dory episode about how those films director, Andrew Stanton, he was inspired to write the original Nemo story after spending a day in the park with his young child and realizing how obsessed he was with worrying over his kids' well-being more so than making father-son memories. In that vein, the story for Up apparently started as uh, Pete Doctor. Monsters, Inc. It, it basically emanated from his thought of what it would take, and he always had this image or this fantasy, I guess, of what it would take to just escape the world forever and leave it behind, consequences be damned. These are not well men, Mike. (laughs) They are consumed with the worst of society and actively looking for ways out, especially when taken into account that they are supposed to be the most lighthearted and carefree in charge of a children's movie-making company. Pete Doctor clearly needs to speak with someone, and I hope and pray he finds the peace he clearly and desperately is seeking in life. They're such a bunch of writers, though. Like this, (laughs) I relate to all of these. The neurosis. Serious anxieties, neuroses. Just waiting for the shoe to drop for something to go bad. Writing an to the like first acts of, right. sc- of these screenplays, and then <laughs> How do dealing I with get heavy out stuff of this forever. <laughs> uh, listening to Doc talk about the inception of this film, while the story of Up had to do with escaping life, the characters and plot began as something very far removed from what we ended up seeing on screen. Citing an interview he gave at TIFF, Toronto International Film Festival, in 2015, Doctor is on record as having said that originally Up was quote a story about two princes who lived in a floating city on an alien planet. Believe it or not, right? Uh, after following that. Thread through for a little bit, Doctor realized he needed to basically start over using only the bare bones idea of having uh, some sort of floating entity that enabled the protagonist to escape the hardships of life. Eventually, thanks to input from Doctor, friend, and fellow actor-director Tom McCarthy, it was settled that the protagonist would be Carl, as you mentioned, the old man whom Doctor was banking on being relatable to children in the same way that kids were able to find a relationship and relate to their own grandparents in their real lives, and surely forming the characters of Russell, Kevin, and Doug along the way also helped with relatability issues as well. So they went from cloud cities on an alien planet to 
relatable grandparents. That, that's that's fascinating. A bit of a leap, yeah. It was just, you know, they were right there on the cusp of it, as always. Uh, I'd also like to just mention again that Andrew Stanton, the director of WALL-E, he truly, truly was outmaneuvered in terms of research trips for Pixar films. Yeah. You're going to hit on this later, I know, but just to mention it, uh, you'll recall Brad Bird and friends went to Paris to eat authentic French cuisine and see the sights for the background from Ratatouille. Perks uh, of the job. Stanton, uh, he, he took trips to the disposal factories and dump sites for WALL-E, setting yeah and aquariums for the uh you know finding nemo movies. and then we're back to doctor who took a couple friends on pixar's dime and went to venezuela to basically look at the sites and sort out what would become paradise falls in this movie Unbelievable. so guy goes to france to eat guy goes to venezuela to sightsee guy goes to your local dump they take the best field trips <laughs> and maybe a few of the worst but the best so this is all one big way of me saying there isn't a ton to comment on with regards to pixar the company as a whole when this movie was in development and it's debuted their finally. Film, they've hit their stride. With hit, hit their stride and are fully fledged a part of Disney. Pixar now comfortably a Disney entity after the 2006 acquisition. And the company had already paid more than its share of dividends to the House of Mouse because as of the end of Up's theatrical run... Pixar purchased Arm of Disney had made four films for the mouse on a combined budget of roughly $590 million, which had grossed approximately $2.35 billion just in four films, which breaks down to roughly about $4 grossed for every $1 put into production for a Pixar movie. That is, that is incredible. It's business doing tactics. well for itself. <laughs> Mike, just one production nugget, and you hit on it briefly there. OMG, the setting is real. Yeah. This blew my mind. This place exists. I never realized this. There there are 40-minute documentaries. I watched a 21-minute one on YouTube with all the Pixar people taking their trip to the Tapuis of Venezuela. Yeah. They saw up the labyrinth. They saw the uh, same kind of rock structures. They saw the falls, the Paradise Falls. They made it a little bigger, yeah, but they saw all the plant life, all the animal life. They got, they saw the caves from Munz's caves in the in the in the movie. Mike, they took back videos, pictures, samples, but they also s- literally sat on every rock and every every crevice and drew and drew and drew until they not only had the feel of the place they had the smell and they knew what they needed their audience to see and feel yeah it truly sounded like a research trip too because the way they described it, the way i read it they were taking jeeps up sides of mountains they were going through backpacking and excursion on their own so they really were taking all sorts of avenues to get into the depth of wildlife there yeah, they almost got caught overnight on one of the, the most dangerous tapuis, which are these just cliff faces that yeah. go straight up and these little tiny, almost like plateau mountains in Venezuela. They go miles up in the air, like three, couple miles, thousands of feet. And they got caught on this one with like no plant life and the clouds would just sweep over super fast, downpour, 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 oh, helicopter. Like they had the bright idea of going to the, you know, the crazy looking one right. the next day after visiting the first one and then you can only fit so many people in the one helicopter so they're back and forth back and forth (laughs) and then the last group got stranded there oh my gosh they had to take shelter with the with the storm and then they barely got out 15 minutes before dark hit could have been a very different movie without pete doctor at the helm (laughs) (laughs) just unreal stuff but it's also real stuff it's it's crazy (laughs) much like pixar is yeah mike you got some uh specs specs for up directed by pete doctor and bob peterson i love you (laughs) 
It's a co-director credit as well, written by Dr. Peterson and Tom McCarthy, aforementioned there. They each get story by credits. Peterson and Dr. each get screenplay by credits. Peterson is clearly a bit of the odd man out here as he has spent his career primarily as a voice actor for Pixar, most notably as the voice of Roz in the Monster series. Uh, in this film, he would be his lone director credit on his CV. And yes, by the way, that's, that is Tom McCarthy, Oscar winner from Spotlight, Win-Win, the station agent, agent, the visitor. That's the same dude. I don't like how famous people are friends with famous people all the time. <laughs> uh, this film debuted May 29, 2009, has a 96-minute runtime on a PG rating. Walt Disney Pictures and Pixar are their production companies. Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures is the distributor for the Ooh. second time for a Pixar film, as we discussed in Wally's episode, that Wally was the first Pixar movie to be distributed under the new Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures brand, as opposed to the long-running Buena Vista distribution brand that Disney had run since the 60s. Good deal. Good deal for all around. Yeah, not bad. One thing you learn about Pixar is that they are a tight ship, and they like to rely on people they have relied on for a while. That's why Michael Giacchino is back to do the music. But they also have shown a willingness to promote people who have done lesser jobs for the brand in the past, and that's how Kevin Nolting received his first edited-by credit for this movie after having worked as an additional editor, a second editor, and an assistant editor on Pixar films of the past. This was the first movie of the past five Pixar films whose budget actually did not increase over the previous installment. Hmm. Uh, Wally, prior to Up, had set the record for highest production budget for a Pixar film at $180 million, and Up was able to be made for just a paltry $175 million. Uh, but luckily, those $5 million made it no less of a critical hit. 8.2 IMDb rating on 841,000 reviews, good for the 114th movie on the IMDb Top 250 list. Its score, in reality, ties it with such films as The Apartment, Scarface, and MMO favorite All About Eve. It has a 98% certified fresh Rotten Tomato score and 292 critic reviews. How dare those seven critics rate this as rotten? Who are they? 90% Want to know. 90% audience score on over 1.2 million reviews on Rotten Tomatoes there. An 88 Metascore, which ties it for the eighth highest scoring Pixar Metascore amongst the group of Pixar films. Eighth? This is the eighth best Pixar movie? Okay. We'll I say I want to know who those critics are. They must all look like Carl Fredrickson, and they'll just be like upset because they're the same kind of cantankerous and just haven't met their Russell yet or Ellie. Uh, financially, this film made money at the box office to the tune of seven hundred and thirty-five million dollars at the worldwide box office, Not bad. including two hundred and ninety-three of that coming domestically. It's the second highest-grossing Pixar standalone movie of the bunch, and finished as the fifth highest-grossing U.S. film and sixth highest-grossing worldwide film of. 2009, Excellent. and its 68.1 million opening weekend still stands as the 25th best domestic box office opening ever for a PG-rated film. Mm -hmm. uh, still breaking in the top 25 there. Up found such success, in fact, that it became only the second Pixar film ever to the original Incredibles movie to procure multiple Oscar wins for its performance back at the 2009-2010 show. I it, wanted more! It took home Best Animated Feature because the Academy are human beings with eyes and hearts, apparently. And also, Giacchino finally was rewarded with his first and only Oscar ever for Best Original Score. The film would even tie Wally for the most Oscar noms for any Pixar film ever with five, a feat which would only be matched by one other future Pixar movie, which we will get to in time. Mm -hmm. uh, it was also nominated on the night for original screenplay, sound editing, and as Mike said, best picture, which it lost to Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker. 
Uh, just one little note here. By this time, Pixar had become so entrenched in the cultural, in such a cultural touchstone and a force in every area of movie making that this film, Up, would become the first Pixar film and indeed the first animated film ever to open up the Cannes Film Festival as it did in 2009. Oh, that, that's fitting right now because the Cannes Film Festival yeah. is going on. See? We're going to have an update on MMOW uh, it's this Sunday. almost like we know what we're doing. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> Plot premise time? Yeah, go ahead, Mike. What about All right, we have a 78-year-old Carl Fredrickson travels to Paradise Falls in his home, equipped with balloons, inadvertently taking a young stowaway. Hollywood keeps making the same movies. Shouldn't this star, like, Jack, this, this like, should be about Schmidt. This, you think so? This is not, like, an animated film premise that I would think i mean yeah paradise falls sounds a little animated but mike i never thought this could work i remember watching the trailers when this came out there's no way they're gonna pull this off and yet it's pixar do you remember seeing this did you see this in theaters when it came out i did i I loved it It was my second favorite film in 2009 only second to inglorious bastards uh to get into our expectations talk about either extreme of the uh (laughs) the spectrum there i'm I'm a weird dude i got a large palette i don't know i don't know how distinguished it is but it's large mike uh i didn't remember those five Oscar noms, but that's really special, and that's special for an animated film at the time. I'm a little surprised that five is like the most that a Pixar film has done. I would think there would be one that came in with like ten noms, but I guess we're not rewarding, we're not nominating actors for their performances and True. voiceover roles, so True. it kind of takes out some. It's kind of like almost the max it can get in a way, right. unless you get the sound... You know, maybe seven or eight. Right. You know, if you get all the technical ones involved and all, and then the writing and the music. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of tough to go beyond that. Maybe eight is like the max. Let's see. Original score, original song, two sounds. The screenplay. Screenplay, the picture. Six? What yeah. else? Song. Oh, I said song Set already. design, if, if they decide to do yeah, something like uh, they, Isle of Dogs. Yeah, you know maybe what I mean? six yeah. is the max. That's tough. So I'm really proud of this movie getting as much Oscar love as it did. This is a a funny and delightful watch for two hours, and I never thought it would have exceeded my expectations, which were sky high going into this. So this was an awesome movie watching. Rewatch rewatching experience for me i didn't watch this in theaters i know i watched it at, uh, years after it came out on like a vod or something but i i was i knew what i was getting with this movie it was it left an indelible enough impression on me the first time that i was very vividly uh, aware of what i was going to get into and it didn't disappoint you're right so getting into production values mike i mean we usually go site first but this score was a worthy winner if there was only an oscars every decade <laughs> this would probably win my Oscar for Best Original Score. I'm with you. It's It sticks with you. It's something very impactful. I also go back to the age-old question, you know, what comes first? Does the score heighten the emotional manipulation, or does the story heighten the score's emotional manipulation? It's a chicken and an egg question, because mm-hmm. you have a story that's so enveloping and investing, and it calls to you, and it's relatable, and then you have this score, which is so repeatable, and it just makes everything infinitely more heart-wrenching. I love the Ellie theme. Obviously, that's the same yeah. piece of this score. You have... It working to make you happy, to make you sad, just based on the tempo of it, just based on how fast they play it, literally. And it's unbelievable how that one little ditty works in all all scenarios. Certainly a well-deserved Oscar. It beat out Avatar, Sherlock Holmes, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and The Hurt Locker. Mm-hmm. Of which I can remember zero songs from any of those. I remember Sherlock Holmes. Do you? Yeah, that that has. A well, fun that was Hans Zimmer too. That so has that a fun sense. score, but uh, other than, well, Hurt Locker, no. 
What was it, just a ticking clock, the whole movie? <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a who's who with the, with the uh, composers here. James Horner for Avatar, Hans Zimmer for Sherlock, Desplot for Fantastic Mr. Fox, and Marco Beltrami. Oh, that's right. For Hurt Locker. Yeah. Giacchino got his first one. Well-deserved. I mean, I if you're going to overcome that field of composers, you really got to put something memorable on, on film. And this score, it really is remarkable. I'm a little surprised that Ed Asner was the voice and not a singing Randy Newman for the old man. <laughs> Like that would have fit. What about two on the nose for <laughs> yeah, Pixar? True. Uh, Animation-wise, to get into sight, Mike, they their biggest innovation for, for this one was the ten thousand balloons tied to the top of that house. I almost put this into the specs, but I yeah. didn't. How they have it down to a number. Not only how many balloons actually are on screen <laughs> for when the house is raised into the air, but Doctor commenting on how many balloons it would have actually taken for like the engineering request that they got to, to put that many balloons actually on screen. It was like over 2 million that would have been needed. They right. actually figured this out. It's, it's, they are scientists as well. As, <laughs> they're crazy they're people. Crazy. But they also had them attached to individual strings yeah. like, to make things more realistic, to make it all move correctly, to give it that big mound, obviously that canopy. When those balloons first come, come out of that chimney, my God, Mike. First of all, they couldn't exist in that chimney right like like how did he get up there to have him blown up what how does that happen but it's it's so much fun and when and when that that visual is just just absolutely drops your jaw i love that they chose went back to caricature we, this has been a running theme for us where they've gone realism for like toy story 2 mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get into that later they've gone realism for the fish movies uh, for finding those fish movies, finding Nemo and Dory for Ratatouille, <laughs> they went full realism for that. And then you have a cartoon rat running around like Paris. That Paris looks like it's actually Paris for much of the movie with all the realistic lighting. Now they go back to caricature. The old man is not a realistic depiction. He's a box. You have the kid who's a goofy little kid. You have uh, all the uh, fantastic caricatures yeah, as of far the as, animals. As far as the characters go, they're unrealistic. But this is the first Pixar movie that we've seen that shows actual blood in the in the prologue when when Carl hits the guy with his walker the guy in his mailbox we see actual blood and we we get the actual uh legal proceeding that would I mean this guy gets charged with assault he gets he has to be detained he goes to a court proceeding I was amazed they actually went through and that was the kind of the catalyst for this whole up uh adventure and I guess you can say like the setting is really based on the real setting and we always of gentrification I, yeah look, i always thought that this was a made-up world i never <laughs> imagined like it never crossed my mind that that is really venezuela it's actually venezuela yeah so i guess in my in my brain i'm still thinking yeah a full caricature but no i guess they put him in a real setting which is just literally blows my and mind there's still so. adult theme i mean i commented on gentr- gentrification the whole reason that that Carl's house is, you know, he's under such scrutiny as it is, is because of the surrounding areas being turned into a strip mall, and he's the last holdout, like so many old people are when they don't want to move. I love it so much. I love how the piggy bank keeps getting broken every time they save. Like, there's finance in there. (laughs) It's it's all in this movie, and it's, it's, you know, all the badges that they have for the Cub Scout or the uh, Boy Scout thing with the Russell. Mike, this movie is just beautiful, though. The story's beautiful, yeah, characters are beautiful, the setting, the themes, everything about this movie is beautiful. It makes you swoon. And I, I rarely use words like that for, for these films, but this one just, I, I could not get over how it just made me happy. We, we talked in the pre-production, you're higher on this than I am, but you're absolutely right. There's nothing, I mean, there's very few, if any, 
takeaways, wrong marks, you know, lows, worsts that we're going to talk about in this because this is a really, really unique film. Unique, and I can't believe that they followed up a silent movie about a robot falling, holding hands with another robot with a movie about an old man, a 78-year-old old man that wants to basically go on kind of a suicide mission. It was so. It was worse than that. If you if you read the pre production, if you read about how before they got to where they landed on with the script, right. literally, Doctor ta- talks about how all they had at one point was Carl wanting to get into the heavens to go chase Ellie, literally, and it was essentially very much a suicide mission. <laughs> so yes, that's at the roots of this. To get into the performances now, Pete Doctor is brilliant. I watched a bunch of behind-the-scenes footage on him directing the eight-year-old boy Jordan, a guy playing Russell. He said he had he had basically tricked the kid because yeah, on the one hand, he didn't want to hire a theater child, right? Because a theater child was just going to be super energetic. He's at the early stages of his acting career, mm-hmm. learning to be an actor, learning to project, and basically those kids to Doctor sound quote phony. And I would agree with that. We got a lot of issues on this pod, and it discredits entire films because the one child actor performance is just unwatchable. And in this, it's just a doctor tricking this kid to sound like a kid and not to put on a performance. And he had to even do that with a non-actor, and he would make the kid run around the studio, like the recording studio. Run around this, jump over that. And then come back and say the line. <laughs> and, and I'm watching this kid do that. And then the kid sounds like a, just a normal kid saying the line. It's a perfect, perfect job. These guys are brilliant. I guess we can't be surprised that Pixar is a master of uh, child, actual, literal, physical child manipulation when it comes to getting <laughs> the uh, the voices they want. That is a dark way to put it, but you're not wrong. I will say that. You're not wrong. Then these animals are hilarious. For them to base the dogs on all their dogs at home. So this is a cheat code, right? Yeah. Like, anytime you're going to have... <laughs> have adorable dogs and you're going to personify them and give them voices you're going to get bonus points how hard is that to screw up it's impossible if you're going to make them likable and not like have them give them dark undertones if it was just alpha in this movie yeah you could see that being an issue but the character of doug is a cheat code personified they even give alpha that voice yeah and they work around it it's it's amazing and the birds of course and then for them to make grumpy old carl such a fun character to have all these ah, uh, <laughs> and then to have the, the perfect foils for him you know you have the dog the bird and of course russell uh, i i loved it so much I, I i'm gonna go more into the villain in spoilers but i i just think the arc for the protagonist is one of the best and to get into script thoughts a little bit for a hot second mm-hmm. i think this is perhaps the best act two of any pixar film which is saying a lot and it's just thoroughly enjoyable. It doesn't get lost. There's a clear mission that they're on. Yeah, I mean, it's a dark one, but just a masterful touch to make all the bad guys likable, like you said, with some of the dogs. And then I think Ed Asner summed it up so well. You know, he said to talk about theme and working it through the script, Ed Asner's quoted as saying, It's about the union of two souls is more powerful than the isolation of one. I mean, that is. Hmm catnip to a writer if i ever heard it and in another interview he said don't live in the past be open to the present and, and anticipate the future i mean good god yeah Mike, it's, it's, right it. on, it's right on the nose yeah ed asner real treasure <laughs> hey, absolutely and the the whole the carl character probably doesn't work with his curmudgeonness unless you have you know the uh 
the Russell character chipping away at that veneer every chance he gets and yeah. forming, forging that bond that's so authentic and it plays so real and it's so relatable. And it, again, it's cheat codes. I mean, Pixar just knows they have these tried and true formulas. They know what are fail safes. Mm -hmm. Talking dog, fail safe. Kid that has this tough childhood that doesn't even realize how hard he has it and mm -hmm. is just trying to do his best, fail safe. Curmudgingly old grandfather that we can all relate to, fail safe. And they just, they're, and masters are putting them all on screen. I wonder how their writing process goes because obviously it went from alien space suicide mission <laughs> right. to you know to to, to talking dogs. Now, the, 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 so what is the the arc of the, the that writers? Right. Room? What are they saying? Can we have a talking fish in a bowl? No. How about a toy? Yeah. How about how about an amusement park? No, not an amusement park. What about Venezuela? You would love to see like the the origins of all these stories. It's like, yeah, we had a guy in a hot dog cart that tripped over his mouth and chipped his tooth, and that became Toy Story Three. <laughs> oh God, that's funny. Let's uh, dance. Oh uh, yeah, let's go right into spoilers here. Right. Spoilers ahead. Hey, that is the bird. I have never seen one up close, but this is the bird. May I take your bird back to camp as my prisoner? Yes, yes, take it. And on the way, learn how to bark like a real dog. Oh, I can bark. And here's howling. Can we keep him, please, please, please? No. But it's a talking dog. This is a spoiler warning. This is the spoiler section for the Up episode into the Pixar rewatch series brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. If you've not seen the movie Up, I don't believe you, but it's okay. Uh, if you don't want to have it spoiled, this is a good place for you to pause, go see the movie, come back, we'll be waiting for you when you get here. If you've seen the movie already, if you know what happens, if you just want to hear our takes on it, or if we've hyped it up so much for you that you don't care about not having seen it and can't possibly wait another minute, this is where you want to be. It's the spoiler section, all spoilers all the time. The Pixar rewatch series, the episode covering the movie Up, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Mike, we start these spoiler sections with one of the rules for Pixar's 22 rules to screenwriting success what goes with up so we're talking about rule number 11 with this film because it's our 11th film that we've reviewed mm -hmm. thus far in this pixar rewatch even though we're only eight episodes in we've done a couple of series and one-offs there so we have rule number 11 saying putting it on paper lets you start fixing it if it stays in your head a perfect idea you'll never share it with anyone and mike this sounds obvious but it is really not. Like, I've gotten lost for years in the idea phase, in the plotting phase, in the just whatever, the brainstorming phases of screenwriting, and I think a lot of us can. You, whether you get lost in a bad idea, it keeps you down, or even if you have good stuff, you have to get it on paper so you can start making it work. And just look at this. I mean, we already mentioned the whole plot structure. Yeah. But let's focus on the villains for a second here. It really speaks to how the evolution of Charles Muntz. So they, they knew they wanted Muntz to be a reflection of Carl and Carl's old self, his former self. So how do they make that connection? Well, Carl Muntz, the adventurer from the 1920s, that young little Carl saw at the movie theater, right? Charles Muntz adventurer. Yeah. He fell in love with movies. He fell in love yeah. with literally nature in that moment, right? And he goes home as a little boy playing, you know, Charles Muntz the adventurer, and he he goes by a house where little Ellie is playing the same thing. She just saw the same movie, and she's the adventurer. So the connection between those two characters that would eventually get married is Charles Muntz. Yeah. So talk about former self here. You know, a lot of scripts that they had in the early goings of production, 
tried to redeem months, but it always ended up with just two guys talking, and Doctor was like, that never really worked. So, <laughs> since... Game of Thrones finale, hi. Uh, so, <laughs> they basically said that it needed... He needed to die. Munts needed to die. And he can't be redeemed because we do have to kill off Carl's old self. So a, the death sequence that they first landed on was that Munts would get lost in the labyrinth going after the bird. Now, this is pretty good, but it derailed Carl's story. So it didn't serve the protagonist well enough because it became too much about Munts and the whole shining aspect of that. So basically, they tried to have Munts just float off on the house originally. But then they're like, Munts was with Ellie, and that's weird, right? We don't want Munts with Ellie. and that's, that's, that's... <laughs> So they just dropped him off the side of a plane. <laughs> well, then they had, him, they had him go up in the air, like get caught up on the balloon strings and oh my go God. up in the air. But then it was like ambiguous. They didn't know if uh, the audience would expect Munts to come back or, you know, would he come back for a sequel? <laughs> Think about the ways they're breaking, like the mathematically and like computational ways. And never they're not even touching on the fact that they're basically talking about suffocating a man to death, uh, <laughs> having him float off into the wilderness. Uh, These the slow, agonizing demises as opposed to the one they landed on. Yeah, which was just getting caught on a few strings which is not enough to keep him afloat at that height, and then the, goes down basically at terminal velocity. And they basically, like, <laughs> we just had to get rid of him and get back to Carl's story and kill off his old self. It makes <laughs> a ton of sense. What they landed on was like a, a, a definite compromise between everything else. And it, and it went down the road on so many other like creative paths that you go down, and that, that could have been smarter in a way. Like, getting him getting lost in the labyrinth would have been smarter but it didn't fit the story right. They also would have needed to end it by the close-up of him frozen in time in the maze, like The Shining, and then closing in the picture. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, they don't even take into account the most brutal, like, the, the horrible ways that this meant that this character was dies. They're just thinking about it as a reflection of the protagonist's story, which is unique, I guess, in its own right. Is this also, this rule kind of sounds holistically as an advocacy for Pixar's entire storyboarding process, because we've mm -hmm. talked about how they have these open writer's rooms, or at least, I don't know if they did it this time. Do you think they, they have found it in. one guy that's like the death guy? The, the cartoon <laughs> wrap death this guy? Up. He gets impaled on the dinosaur boat. It's just a it's, it's the guy from Grandma's Boy that's in the robotic room. Yeah. But it, it, this this sounds like how we talked about when the early days of Pixar. They had open writer's room, open storyboarding room. They would encourage writers to go in and out of people's scripts and leave notes and stuff. And Steve that's, Jobs originally wanted just one bathroom for the whole place. He wanted like one, like in the main atrium, that's where the, on, the only bathroom That's were. a terrible idea. Yeah, they didn't go with that, but they definitely made the, you know, the, obviously the cafeteria in that atrium. So they did, they compromised a little and bit what's, there. What's one way to assure yourself that you're going to have notes and you're going to be able to change and evolve is if you actually open up your idea to a room full of writers sure. and let them comment and leave as they may in passing and that's one way you can evolve this script and obviously this was a script never mind a character that you just talked about but in, in whole this was a script that needed to evolve because the relatability of two princes on an alien planet floating through space probably wouldn't be there I mean, there's a way they could have done it, obviously. They're Pixar. They would have figured it out. But in on its face, you would think that there's not a lot to relate to for guys like you and me to two princes on an alien planet floating through space. They could have had a, a space phase of Pixar. But they, <laughs> it's funny because they don't really go back to the same setting for two movies in a row. They usually, I mean, they've always really gone to different worlds. Yeah. And this was a, a strange 
situation where they had space movie and then another space movie lined up and then they they chose obviously yeah. to go to venezuela which is kind of like <laughs> space and that's what they mentioned it's like this was like walking on the moon in a way uh mike we're gonna get into heartbreaks and happiness now and we could probably go forever on I both mean, but we want to this is just the this is the first the prologue of the movie isn't it this is the heartbreak god that ellie montage <laughs> made me cry again of i mentioned it, it my brother and i were laughing at ourselves at how emotional we got it's just some of the best filmmaking ever. The music working. Of course. Be, everything to, is perfect about this. To I make mean, you so happy. Just the kiss that they have at the wedding. Oh, my God. I also wonder how much of a self-imposed dare it was. Because you have this company that was just off making an entire movie, right, with no dialogue from its main characters in Wally. Like, you mm-hmm. had the humans that gave you had Fred Willard talking, obviously. But you had Wally who couldn't speak, Eva who couldn't speak. And they had a whole movie playing with emotions in that. And so I wonder if it was like a self-imposed... Okay, we did that. Mm-hmm. Pete Doctor looks at Andrew Stanton's creation and says, I bet I can make grown men cry without words. <laughs> <laughs> and so he takes it up another level... And we we have this prologue of this expository relationship being laid out and you've got everything you need to know about Carl as a character in this first 15 minutes where not a word is spoken. He's a shy kid. He doesn't speak to her as a child in the prologue. And then obviously, you know, throughout, they had the most idyllic marriage. Yeah. And it's sad that they didn't adopt or something. Let's just say that. It fits that they want to be have an adventure Mike, the setup of the adventure book and Paradise Falls as being so pivotal to their relationship after she has the miscarriage mm-hmm. and is being told. I mean, I can't believe they're hitting on these things. She's yeah. out there literally surviving her existential crisis, looking off into the sunset, and then the husband comes and shows her a picture of Paradise Falls or whatever he did there. Now they have new motivation, and then real life coming in the way. Good God, this movie got to me. And to have, like, literally the start, the, you know, the bookend scenes, right? Walking up the hill to look at the clouds back so and sad. forth. Oh, yeah. my God. Uh, so everything with Ellie in this movie is a heartbreak. Uh, when Carl sees the house rest on Paradise Falls at the end, my goodness. Yeah, is everything everything Ellie related. And I think, the, the you know, you, you hit on the adoption thing. You hit on her not, her not being able to have kids. That not only draws in the adults. I mean, how many of us say, can, can relate to that type of story? Sure. And that gives you a whole new relatability for every adult out there that's taking their kid to see this kid's quote-unquote kid's movie. And, and it gives them the perfect opportunity to bring Russell. Russell, yeah. And so it's a whole foundation for the Russell character. That's what was missing yeah. from their lives. And obviously now we have Carl relating to Russell. But, of course, the, the genius of that adventure book when carl rereads it and mike when she writes you're my greatest adventure <laughs> i'm almost teared up right now i can't believe myself i'm mad this is what men do when they, they get angry when they get a book <laughs> well this is why the world has so when when carl does return to that adventure book though when he's finally had enough and yeah. he, you know he's, he's at his wits end he yells at russell russell blames him for kevin storming off kevin the bird storming off mm-hmm. getting crapped i mean by months and and carl's had enough and he snaps it was really clever too artistically so we're met, we're, we meet Carl's house the first time, and it's these lush colors. It's this beautiful, vibrant thing, all these different balloons. Yeah, that mailbox, my God. And when he returns after being angry and yelling at Russell, the palette, the artistic palette is like a more, more 
weighed out and phased okay. out, yeah. washed out a little yeah. bit. And there's an Old. explanation for it within the movie because this house has been just through the jungle and has being like walked like a dog through all these hardships. But it also goes with the subtext of Carl is now, you know, a little more angry and getting on his wits end and doesn't have the vibrancy and, and needs to go back and find reinvigorate himself by going through the book and adding more color to his life by readjusting why he's there in the first place. It's just so... This might be the tightest script of any Pixar movie we've seen. He throws out all of his possessions, anybody sets up yep. the chairs, right? Yep. Oh, God, he sets up the chairs on the falls. But they use the, the adventure book three times because then in the epilogue, in terms of heartbreaks, you have, it's also happiness, it's all of it, but when Russell finally reveals that he comes from a broken home, that his dad neglects oh, him, that's God. an emotional moment too, and it makes it so much more just rewarding later on when you get the epilogue with Carl and Russell and all their pictures yeah. put in after Ellie told him to have another adventure. I gotta be honest, that the, the epilogue, the ending here, where you have... This movie ends with Russell having told Carl about the game he is in, him and his father used to play. They used to get ice cream and one point for every blue car, yeah. one point for every red car. And so we we have that exact game playing out with Carl now, Russell, and Doug. And when Doug says gray car because dogs are colorblind, I lost my shit. Oh but my it, it's almost, that payoff is almost as emotional as the prologue is with the Ellie introduction and sure. the whole love story. Sure. I mean, it, it, it gets to you. This gets to you in a lot of different ways, whether you're talking about some. Even if you're dating someone, if you have a child of your own, if you've yeah. lost any kind of loved ones close to you, this is a very adult movie. Much like every Pixar movie we are realizing really is, and that's probably why they are so successful, because you have the kids that are going to be drawn to this, obviously, but it's the parents and the guys like us that rewatch these things that realize that get so invested and that drives up the box office. We just talked about whether or not your niece and uh, nephew have seen this movie yeah. yet. Do, would you show it to them? Do you think it's too emotional? Not yet. I, I, not yet. It's no. PG yeah. for a reason. Right. And that's for it's for these heavy-hitting emotions. So, I, yeah, maybe they got to wait a little bit. I wanted to comment on that, too, actually, now that you brought it up. PG, yeah. I saw this on demand. I think it's on Stars On Demand right yep. now. They actually have a warning for mild violence at the beginning of this. It's... <laughs> A crazy action movie in many ways, and you're right. They did show the blood when uh, yep. Ratzenberger got hit there. So, but let's get into some happiness moments yeah. because obviously the the prologue with little baby Carl and baby Ellie mm -hmm. meeting each other just made me so happy. Uh, that the wedding pre scene of the montage where they, that first kiss it's a gift now. It's just oh the hap you may kiss the bride moment is just so happy when they pull back and they show the two families Ellie's family going wild yeah. Carl's family <laughs> like golf reserved. clapping yeah. <laughs> I thought that was perfect uh, and then you have all the stuff with the curmudgeon getting foiled by the kid and it's when when freaking Russell knocks on the door midair <laughs> Number one, everything with the balloons rising. So when he sets the balloons free, mm -hmm. it's just just glorious. Absolutely glorious when he's like, see you later, guys. <laughs> and then he's in midair. And then he, all, what does he do when he's in midair? He just goes back and sits just down sits on down. his chair. He's just uh, his mission accomplished. <laughs> and then knock, knock, knock. Huh? <laughs> and it's Russell there. He's like, can I come in, please? No. No. <laughs> Slams the door. <laughs> killed me. Killed me. Absolutely killed me. Uh, happiness moments. Uh, 
everything in Act Two, I could say it's just nonstop comedy and action goods. Mike, I forgot how funny this movie was. There's a lot of one-off jokes that have really no further purpose than just being so innocent and fun. Like when they're in the air, yeah. And Russell reveals his GPS that his dad gave him. He's like, <laughs> I know exactly where we are. I could tell you. And the only reason we'll they introduced that now. plot device at all is to say, yes, we're in South America, that the and kid so could have navigated. Right? There. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Russell's like, no, with this, we'll never get lost. And he throws it out the window by accident. I laugh so hard at that because it's just so innocent and stupid and just like any kid would do. They finally get on the ground and then he's doing all the old man stuff still. He's like, whatever you do, none of this rap music. We're just going to get their pizza. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the hell is he talking about? It just made me so happy. Mike, all the animals. I mean, everything with the Every time that bird yells, it's I'm laughing. And every time that dog speaks, I'm laughing. How about Pixar being ahead of the game, too? I don't even know if this was intentional. I'm going to imagine it was because they're a very progressive and forward-thinking company, mm -hmm. obviously. But naming the girl bird Kevin and not finding out until afterwards and then sticking with the name Kevin in this sure. age of, of you know, LBGTQ <laughs> rights that we're all in right now, sure. I think that was beautiful. To have Doug first speak, by the way, might be the, my favorite moment of the entire franchise. So the, the bird stuff... I loved it, but the dog, I'm a dog person, so Mike. to have that dog be like, I just met you, and I love you. You are my master, and I am in love with you. <laughs> Talking about to the Please bird. be my prisoner. Oh, please, oh, please be my prisoner. Squirrel. <laughs> Mike, Give me these dogs, when they get to Munce's house, right, yeah. and the dogs are in charge of setting up for dinner... <laughs> There's so like like all right, Munts is showing Carl and Russell around the place and mm -hmm. there's a dog dusting a skeleton of like this antique skeletal remains and he's dusting the skeleton off and then he immediately starts biting the bones that he just dusted off because see that's what dogs do. Yeah. There's dogs setting up wine glasses and they're trying to pour the wine into the glasses and it gets nowhere near because they don't have opposable thumbs. Look, Charles Munts is also perhaps the most innovative <laughs> and genius scientist in mankind history the fact that carl doesn't save him and like preserve him and his inventions for all mankind after this is is real it might be the <laughs> biggest tragedy of the film i might add not just ellie ellie dying is terrible but that might be and charles Muntz as a character is incredible uh the dogs well, are playing poker in a one-off oh, they're God. on the ship as that's <laughs> just how they pass time obviously alpha with the voice yes uh, Look, I mean, Russell's adorable, and he melts Carl's heart by the end. For the fact that he's standing by the bird, Kevin, it makes it makes sense in a, in, a, in every way that the old man's like, "Get rid of that bird, yeah," and "Get rid of that dog," and it breaks your heart when he says "bad dog" to, mm -hmm. to Doug. But then it, you know, when he says "good dog" later on, just so simple, just simple yep. setup, payoff. Oh my God! You're such a good dog. Are you my master? Yeah, I'm your, ma I'm your master, aren't I? I'm your. You're my dog, aren't you? Oh my God! It just broke me down. Um, obviously, a moment of happiness, heartbreak, everything is that when Carl rereads that adventure book. Yeah. It hypes you up though too. So that, that's great. And then of course everything in the epilogue, like they're all playing with the baby birds. <laughs> Yeah. And the mother yells at him to get there. They're like, oh, they all say it at once. Are you kidding me? Uh, and then, of course, the you know the Monsters University style epilogue with the picture book. It's just that, that, that that'll get you every time. And the badge ceremony at the end, too, where, where sure. Carl shows up. I mean, that was a very heart-wrenching scene, very happy scene for me. It got me a little emotional. But, yeah, look, they, Pixar has proven this is their, what, 10th picture at this movie? We said this is our 8th episode. They're masters at emotion.
emotional manipulation. This is what they do. There's a reason they've made an infinite number of dollars uh, at these films. Yeah, so to talk about some more script thoughts, I guess more best scenes in a way, I think reuniting with Muntz is one of the most genius things they've done. Don't in meet your heroes type uh, storyline. Yeah, yeah. It is brilliant. I can't get over that. It, it drove the, the quest, but to reunite with him there as old and having turned, oh my God goodness what uh i mean irony dramatic irony in spades and the internal struggle it leaves in uh in carl the only thing i thought was forced i, I guess you can call this a worse too along those lines i yeah. don't know but when months successfully does capture kevin the bird yeah russell immediately turns on carl which i thought was a little forced because I mean, he lived it he saw the hardship i mean yes carl made the decision to go after the house rather than and i understand that was the conflict of the character he yeah. was still choosing a, to be set in his old ways i yeah. get that all but still kevin uh, for russell to squarely put the blame saying you gave kevin away that's a little much after a guy came with a pack of dogs and a giant hovercraft yeah th- it's an 8 year old kid though you're <laughs> I right get it. you're yeah. right the 8 year old kid's a little out of line but then the 8 year old kid is like the greatest hero ever wally style using a you know fire extinguisher in space this yeah. kid use a leaf blower with a bunch of balloons to fly motorcycle through the air <laughs> speeder bike style to the rescue i mean is there a bigger hero is there a, i mean like you said he just saw the odds but the kid kind of put his actions where his yeah. mouth was as he walked the walk there to going after it mike i love the old man fight <laughs> I love it. It's one of my favorite so things. So the finale was really impressive because you had three separate storylines playing off at once and yep. culminating at once. You have the Munson and Carl fighting hand-to-hand after Carl had put Kevin, or I'm sorry, put Russell back in the house. Sure. Russell obviously escapes and helps, and et cetera. So you had that those triumvirate. Harrowing and funny somehow. Yeah, and you had Doug trying to outrun Alpha and all the other guard dogs as this is happening. And simultaneously to all this, you have Russell holding on to the hose at the bottom of the house for dear life as the three airplane dog pilots come and try to shoot him down. I can't, I can't even be mad at those dogs. Like, Charles Bunce is the greatest innovator. Like, those dogs right. will thrive in their own society in Venezuela for the rest of eternity on those tapuis. yeah they're still fooled by tennis balls and squirrels. Like, that's the best part. That's <laughs> great. But, but biggest laugh, too, of the movie, when when, uh, when Russell gets caught on the, the window and then yeah. just goes... Yeah. <laughs> and it goes on for so long before the old man fight. Oh, my God, that killed me. It killed me so much. But the action in this movie might be a little far-fetched. We'll get into that as my worst scene in a minute, but it's scary. Like, yeah, Mike, there's stakes. I get vertigo at heights. And I'm freaking the hell out this entire film. Like, I'm jumping, I'm wincing, I'm scared at at the heights of this film. I was surprised with how much, uh, I guess, stakes, just to repeat myself, they put into being up that high and how dangerous that was, and then choosing to do off your antagonist in that way. Like, you set it up that it's just nothing is more dangerous, there's no higher stakes in the movie, and then you're going to just... That's the way you off him. Well, I thought, oh my God. It's genius because like when, when uh, Russell's on the porch, right, when we first realize he's a stowaway, like what happens first, like his little handkerchief flies, <laughs> flies away yeah. uh, that's on his neck, flies or whatever flew away, just reminds you how high you are. Yeah. And then when they're going down to the tapui, like, oh my God, you got that whatever... Mm-hmm. That whatever rock structure goes by, holy crap, yeah. the feeling of that. I, I can't believe an animated movie 
did this to me. Yeah, it's it's amazing how far they've come. This is the point I'm going to make in our, our next. I'm going to hammer it more in our next uh, Pixar entry. But it's amazing looking back at Toy Story one and looking now here at Up or any of these recent movies in the 2010s. Amazing to see how far Pixar has come as an animated it's company. It's incredible. I will say the only worst for me is the old man trapeze maneuvers. I wish they wrote away those obvious objections. That is, that is a worst. There's no way Carl could do what Carl does. There's no way that Russell okay. did. Okay, you, you know. Yes, obviously. Especially after you make it a gag where their backs lock every few moves. But then again, you have Russell who couldn't hold himself up, all of a sudden finds his inner strength to go all the way up the hose at the end too and get back into the house True. on his own power. So yeah, there's 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 problems in continuity as far as ability and human strength. Yeah. I agree. That's definitely an issue. <laughs> definitely an issue. Can they really hold that house like a balloon? Can the hose actually hold on with a child dangling at the end of it? Especially yeah, especially with how windy that yeah. place is. Give me a break. Of course not. <laughs> and you would think for Four a company points off. for a company that goes like goes into the depths of how that move each and every hair on Sully and Monsters Inc. and has it down to the number of how many balloons it would take in real life. You know, you would think they'd do something with the actual physics because of how grounded in reality this is. But yeah, yeah that's fine. It's excusable. I, I do. It is excusable because of the payoffs right. in the scene. So fine. And, and they're also joking away obvious objections. Yes. Throughout. They are. I mean, you have a ton of jokes, so the comedy makes it. Okay okay as well any final thoughts mike i, I know we kind of been spoiled of late with wally and this movie two of our favorites and there's a reason these things make a half a billion dollars each and yeah. you can say what you want about the overall appeal of uh, disney as becoming the conglomerate in the industry yes that comes with its own consequences yes pixar being so wildly successful for yeah. them is a part of that but taking in a vacuum these pixar movies are just special Right, I mean, they just make us feel feelings still as much as they did back when we were nine or ten years old watching them for the first time. Some of these, as much as they are in our thirties now, and there's a reason for that. And I think they deserve to be highlighted for those reasons. And this is no exception. I, I'm on record. I said it before. I think this might be the tightest script of any Pixar movie we've done so far. Yeah, I, I loved it. I loved it so much. I learned so much from that rule, especially of late. So really grateful to Pixar. At at, at the end of this review and at the end of this rewatch, I got a, I caught it a couple times and excited for brave that we're doing next yeah and i'm really excited to see how we're going to rank all these at the end we're probably going to have to do a re-rank no matter what but wally and up this is tough i may have to re-watch them both back to back to see which one i like more i'm i'm leaning towards up right now i know you're leaning towards wally, leaning towards wally yeah. i'm very curious to see what toy stories two three and four are going to land on that I have a feeling well. Toy Story 3 is going to be the winner at the end of the day. That's Yeah, I, I remember loving that film. Yeah. It was my top-ranked film of that year. So, man, these are Oscar-worthy films. They're great movies. We're just getting, like I said, spoiled at the moment. Absolutely, and it's all in the lead-up to what will likely be a Best Animated Feature contender at this year's Oscars in Toy Story 4. That's the whole reason we're doing this, so we want to know your comments, questions, concerns, thoughts, anything about Up, anything about the Pixar Rewatch series we're doing, anything about Toy Story 4 coming up. Uh, that's all on the horizon for us. You can reach us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram, MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com, and on Reddit. We are available everywhere. You hear podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Spotify, Google Play, etc., etc. Michael, some words of wisdom, and also let them know what's coming next from us. So, yeah, we have Brave coming mm -hmm. next. We we are going to announce another major series, yes. I think, on MMOW, because it's very fitting. There'll be a trailer for the movie that we're building that series towards. Yes. So we're really excited about that. And we're going to 
get into the Oscar race updating business again. That'll be front and center. It's of, about that time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's starting to happen with Cannes Film Festival, and uh, we got to get back to it. I mean, I love how this fits our brand, this entire rewatch, like I said. But in terms of wisdom, Mike, just go no further than Ed Asner. Don't live in the past. Be open to the present. Anticipate the future. I think that's all you need to say. What a, what a, what a treasure. He's an American treasure, and he must be protected at all costs. Sure. That ass. Uh, guys, when reality sucks, you can come watch movies, and especially these Pixar movies with us. They'll get you feeling better. Trying to take the stuffiness out of award season. This is Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We will see you all next time. See you.